a lot of the books that I recommend for product managers to read, of course, everybody needs to have read like the, the, the classic product management material, but I always recommend a lot of books that are actually more coaching, almost self-help related, because I think the way how we communicate and how we relate to people is still what makes the product management part so magical. Because yes, at the end, there's a product, but actually the product manager is like a conductor in a concert hall. Like you are conducting people, not instruments. The people are playing the instruments, but you are conducting so that a beautiful melody comes out of it. Hi, I'm Jason Evanish, and this is Practical Product. We aim to be the most actionable, practical podcast on product management out there. Today, we have a very special guest, a longtime friend, uh, Valentina Turner. She's actually been on another podcast I did for my startup, Lighthouse, talking about remote management. And so I made a little mark in my head before we started this podcast that I knew I wanted to talk to Valentina because we had such a great conversation on remote leadership because she's also a product leader, I knew I had to have her on the Practical Product Podcast as well. And so a little bit about Valentina, she's a product person at Klaus. She specializes in remote leadership. She is an expert at remote strategy and consulting, and specifically helping leaders figure out how remote can work for them and what type of remote leadership is actually effective, because there's a lot of nuance to this, and that's what we're going to dig into today. So thanks for joining us, Valentina. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jason. So I think one of the interesting challenges with doing product is it's so multidisciplinary that there are all these different little aspects of it. And when you go to remote, some of them are fine and can continue the way they are. And other ones, you have to not just do a one-for-one trade-off, but you have to move to a different way of doing certain things. And so I, I want to just kind of start asking you kind of at a high level, and then we can start to dig into the nuance today, is you know, what are you think some of the biggest differences that happen when someone has to shift to remote product leadership and having a remote product team versus maybe being co-located? So disclaimer, I have never worked in an office. I mean, <laughs> I did like 15 years ago, <laughs> but my experience is clearly remote. <laughs> yes, but you've guided a lot of people in that transition, yes. it seems like with some of the courses you've done and some of the other coaching and consulting that you do. Yeah, and I also I have helped product managers to actually make the switch from having worked in an office and then working successfully in a remote first or a completely remote environment. So I think the biggest difference is that you need to be a lot more intentional with your communication. Because if you are co-located in an office, the idea is that information kind of just mag magically infuses itself among the people that are in the office, which doesn't happen, by the way. But it's kind of the feeling that you get. And it's true if you can just turn around and be like, didn't we talk about this last week or we didn't? Ah, yeah. And then like you have this, the trigger that you needed to remember what you wanted to remember. And that, of course, kind of is lost in a, in a uh, remote environment. So you need to be very intentional with the communications that you encourage and the basically the arenas of communication that you create. Like in the office, you can put a water cooler and people will kind of mingle there. How can you do this for your product team? How can you create rituals and habits that make them speak to each other about product stuff and about the other stuff that goes on in their lives? Because I believe that the more interests your people have, the more 
innovative ideas they can bring into uh, into the discussions. Like if you have somebody who only reads product books, only uh, listens to product podcasts, only like does Coursera product courses and speaks about product their entire day at their job, where are their new ideas are going to come from? Like they need to broaden their spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I remember when I was running product at Kissmetrics, we were hybrid. And so that was actually a really interesting lesson in contrast because you'd suddenly be talking to one engineer who you sat next to, and it would be a completely different conversation than the engineer who's like remote. In our case, we had a whole bunch of engineers who happen to live in Ohio. And you would very quickly learn that like, oh, that's, that's right. Nate wasn't around to see me walk out of the conference room after a customer interview with a big smile on my face. But Brett, who sits near me, saw that and said, oh, who are you meeting? Like, what was that meeting? You seem like you're in a pretty good mood. It's like, oh, I talked to this customer. And like that five-minute conversation I had with Brett, like compounds, and you start to build up that communication debt. And if we had been completely remote, then no one would have known I had a really great conversation unless I was proactive about it. So I think that's a, that's a really good point where you have to do things differently and you have to recognize where stuff that would just organically happen, you don't get that like natural push when you're remote. And, and there's actually two sides to this, because on the one side, you need to remember, oh, I just had this amazing conversation with the customer. Let me write down those things and make them available for everybody. But you also need to teach your team that they had, have to look at the things that you've write down, because it's not, it's not enough for you to push the information out there And then if you're sitting next to somebody and talking to them, it's very hard for them to ignore you without real, you realizing it. But in a remote environment, you don't really know, have they read this? So like one of the small things is, okay, I'm pushing this out. When you have read it, can you just react with an emoji so that you get like the feedback? Okay, people have actually seen this because otherwise a week from now, you're going to expect them to know what you're talking about. And they have not the slightest idea because they're, like there was this middle communication thing missing. So it's a push and pushing the information and teaching people to pull the information that they need at the same time. Yeah, one of my favorite tricks, actually, I use it with Lighthouse when I, when I still do customer interviews. I will, I'm a very diligent note taker in customer interviews. So I write out my script. I, I, take, I take some high level notes while, while we're actually doing the interview. And then afterwards, I'll review them enrich the notes with more things because I have time to pause and, and then I'll actually summarize them at the top of the document. I know most people will never look at those documents. That's from me. But what I'll do is I'll take those takeaways, like the, you know, anywhere from three to 10 most interesting things I heard in the discussion. And I will put those in Slack. And like you're suggesting, I will literally at mention team members to make sure they see things like, hey, Jan, our designer, you don't want to miss this. Hey, Eddie, like check this out. This is an interesting like technical related thing. And like It draws in a little more engagement. And then certainly I will also potentially be very intentional about what channel I post it in so the right people see it and it's a lower noise channel. Like when I've coached other PMs, I will even encourage them to make a new channel just for product insights. That way it's not noisy and you know lost in the feed of discussions of about 25 other different things. It's like, no, actually this is a customer insights channel and other people who have customer insights can post there. But this way it's like extremely high signal and low low noise so it's like i think it's it's like you said it's getting people 
their attention awareness, making sure they see it through the reactions and emojis. And I think it's also being intentional on where you place it so that it's a high signal, low noise area where you where you post the most important stuff. Mm-mm. And there, there are two things to this. Like one is a lot of people are like, oh my God, but you're going to have so many Slack cha- channels. And it's like, yeah, at Klaus, for example, we have, I don't know, 130 Slack channels for 60 people. Like there's way more channels that there are people, but just for the product team, there is one channel for every single feature. There's not a lot going on in those channels, but whenever something is going on or when you want to know something about a specific feature, you can go in there and you'll very quickly see the last three discussions, even though they were three weeks ago, because that's what stays there. And there's the like signal versus voice is like very, very deliberate, like, like, more more spaces easily to find but then look at this and it went when it comes to at mentioning team members and this is something that only came up since the pandemic because before the pandemic if you were remote you had selected your people to be basically remote loving asynchronous writer <laughs> types of people yeah. <laughs> which there was like the self-selection of if you want to write stuff down and be very deliberate with no taking then remote was for you and if you didn't then you would go to an office but now there's a lot of people who don't want to be in an office but who were not let's say trained or groomed towards this very specific asynchronous style and that maybe don't read that much or don't like their HDHD doesn't let them focus so much on longer text. So in that case, it's actually a good idea to also mix it up with Loom or now that Slack also allows for the voice messages, like to mix up different versions. What I really love about the Slack voice thing is that you also get the transcript because I hate listening oh, really? to voice nice. messages. But yeah. there is a click on a button, you get the transcript. So somebody oh, will nice. send me a voice message and I read the transcript. <laughs> and most Perfect. of the time it works. So like, seeing what kinds of communication do your people actually actually respond to and then using that doesn't mean that they shouldn't learn how to write because as a good PM, like good writing skills and good presentation skills, like they're crucial. But you also need to get the other people from where they are. So how can you get closer to how they actually use information? Yeah, fun fun stat we're going to pull from my lighthouse experience for a second is one of my favorite studies and I've seen it happen enough times that I know I know it works is they did a workplace study and they wanted to figure out like how do you get projects to move forward and it turns out that the study is that managers who were deliberately redundant in their messaging across multiple mediums had a statistically significant difference in how how successful they were at hitting deadlines and getting work done faster. And so the important part of the insight is It's not just that you have to repeat yourself more than you think you should. That's a general leadership lesson. But the important thing is that you do it across multiple mediums and you have to figure out like where people are going to meet you. And uh, certainly, if you have a large engineering team, the odds of you having all five or 10 of your engineers respond to the exact same style is very unlikely. Instead, like Valentina says here, I think it's really important to recognize that like you might have two engineers that really love that you do audio, two that love your looms, and like three or four that are like, yeah, I just read it and write a comment, we're good. And so realize that as, a, as kind of like the, the glue person on the team as a product manager, creating some flexibility in how you create some of the stuff and mixing it up, you're going to find that different people on your team, it resonates, different mediums resonate with different people. So if you're having trouble having some people get what you're doing, consider mixing up so you're not just always writing a Google Doc, or you're not just always doing a Loom, or you're not just always doing a voice message. If you can find ways 
that isn't too heavy overload for you. You know, I think Valentina, you're pointing out a really great idea here. Like it's like, hey, if you can make a Slack message and you know it's also transcribed, well, you just hit two kinds of mediums with one piece of effort by you. So we talked about kind of this communication kind of medium shift. What other keys do you find are really important for someone who's a remote PM to be successful? So for one of the one of the tenets of, of product management is that you have to figure out the root causes. And there's like this whole, you have to ask five, five times why to actually get to it. The problem, and a lot of people take this very, very like direct. And they're like, so why are you doing this podcast? Oh, because I want to, to but why and why and why? And it comes off if you're on the receiving end and it very quickly starts to sound like, why didn't you hand in your homework yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why is like this typical word that puts people into the defensive, which is not something that you want as a product manager. So I think having a good grasp about how language works and how your wording and the way you communicate, especially in, but not only in writing, can impact the answer you get from customers, but also from your team that's something that is very much undervalued, but can be really, really helpful. So instead of asking customers, why are you doing this? Asking them, what are the kinds of decisions you are making based on this? Or what is it that you hope to achieve? Or what is the underlying, like going into the what and the how much more than into the why. And that's something that I see a lot of like new product managers being so stuck on the why that they kind of miss the bigger picture. And in the end, being a product manager is a bigger picture thing. You kind of need to see all the different impacts, get pattern recognition, and then figure out where it's the best idea to, to act on first. Absolutely. That's a really great point. There's a book I love called Never Split the Difference. And that talks about... It's actually... It, the title will tell you it's about negotiation, but I think it applies to a lot of things you do in life. But also, I can tell you, I've literally made hundreds of thousands of dollars by following literally the exact words they tell you to use. And they are huge fans of what and how questions and they were using them at the stakes of like hostage negotiations with like terrorists so if they work for hostage negotiations with terrorists they probably will also work with your customers who like you a little bit more than those people do i am a big fan and you'd be amazed like i challenge you if you're if you're thinking about this and you're used to asking a lot of why questions i challenge you to sit down and think about how could i ask the same question but use what or how and then go and look at the tone and the style of how it actually changes the entire question. It's actually very similar to if you've ever been taught, like, don't say but, say and instead. Yeah, it's that's like, my other pet peeve. <laughs> yeah. If, if When you do that and you do the yes and kind of the improv style, the same way that when you switch from but to and, it changes the whole tone and tenor of the, the rest of the question. The same thing happens when you shift to what and how, but you can arrive at the same insights that you were hoping to get with five Y. So that's a really great point. And I'll put a link to that book at the end because I think it, it, it'll help really reinforce it. If what and how is kind of new to you, that book is worth a lot. And frankly, it'll probably help you negotiate your next job as well. So definitely a really good book for that. But yes, what and how is a really, a really good point, especially when you start to think about like, communication. I think one of the hard things that I've noticed with remote work is also just the fact that like, well, if you're doing something writing really quick or you're sending a message only one direction, you don't you don't get those reactions back. So I'm curious, Valentina, as a longtime product leader helping people with remote, like how do you think about those ideas of like telling like, did my team get it and understand it? Are they happy or sad right now? Like are they as excited by this feature as I am? Like 
you and I right now are on video, so I can see that, but a lot of asynchronous communication that comes with remote work doesn't get that. So how do, how do you kind of advise people to think about gleaning, whether their team is, you know, as excited as they are, really understanding it, happy or sad about what we're doing? So, uh, by the way, with the end, but, and why, you can set up a, on your computer. I, I use a text expander for that. When I write why, I get like, it lights up and it's like, do you really want to say why? And then I can rephrase the question because otherwise it's very difficult to change habits. But with like, how do you know whether people are excited? There is another book that I really recommend. It's called Metaphors We Live By. It's it's like, it's, a, it's an old book, but it basically analyzes that the way we speak, how this actually influences the way we think and the way that we actually see reality. And one of the things is that If you talk about that you are planting a tree or that you are, like if you use more nurturing language, then things may take a little bit longer, but they also tend to be longer lasting. While if you fire up your team that you have to win this fight or you're going to like nuke the competition or whatever, it creates a very, very aggressive very fear-inducing reality. So like, since you're going to do a lot of your motivational stuff in writing or in, let's call it, premeditated messaging, like things that you think about before you send them out, think about how you talk about them and make sure that you can evoke some kind of hopefully positive emotion around it. Make it very clear how it builds into the big picture about where the company going uh, is going and how this, what this means for the individual person. Because at the end of the day, we always think about what does this mean for me? What's in for me? What does this mean for me to do? And sometimes you can't really tell an individual person, and this is what I need you to do with it. But you need to make it as clear as possible for each individual person to understand, oh, and for me in this position, this means, means I need to do this thing or that other thing so that kind of the you're not telling them what to do but you're telling them hey the way like this is the sign so you go over there and follow this path and then hopefully have some reminder set up for yourself to check whether they actually took that path yeah absolutely have you mastered the most important skills of product management do you know how to interview customers to learn the right things or how to write a product spec your engineers and designers actually want to read Product management comes in dozens of flavors, yet there are a lot more ways to do things wrong than get the results you hoped. And doing things the wrong way can lead to frustrated teammates, failed experiments, resentful and disappointed stakeholders, and a feeling that you're not becoming the product manager you dreamed of. Being a great product manager requires mastering the fundamentals. By learning the most important skills and putting them into practice for every project you own, you set yourself up to ship the right products and get more wins. I've taken the best skills and knowledge I've learned over the last 12 years as a product manager who was lucky enough to learn from some of the best in Silicon Valley, and I've created a 10-week course to help you learn them too. These lessons focus on the most important skills that set you up for success. The program includes templates, guides, and a community so we can all grow together. If you'd like to join us in leveling up your product management skills, go to becustomerdriven.com slash course and reserve your spot for the next cohort of the program. Again, that's becustomerdriven.com slash course. So I love that that context of thinking about like the consequences of 
how you present something. So like you said, that whole contrast of like the, the aggressive war path versus maybe the nurturing, but a little bit slower path. How do you tell if your team is like on the same page with that? Cause like, if you're again, like I, I think about the difference between like when you're in a room together, there's so much body language you can read and things like that. And, you know, even if you have video on in a zoom, you can't always see emotion that well, especially if you haven't like you know, studied a lot of like hardcore body language and facial recognition study. Like you're you, you like the difference between someone who's just kind of like they're a team player, they like you, and like yeah, I'm fired up about this, or like I you know I, I get it. Like how do you how do you tell? How would you get a read on like the temperature of your team for like something new you're doing, or whether you've effectively actually communicated? you know, the reasons why you're working on this next thing or why this thing's important or, or, you know, anything along those lines where the, it's not just, do they understand yes or no? It's like, are they bought in? So I use, I do a lot of that in one-on-ones to be very honest, because in, in team meetings, it's, it's really difficult to figure out who's doing what. And then you always have some people in the team who are a little bit more open book than others. Uh, Sometimes if you have a multinational team, like people from Northern Europe tend to be a lot more closed up than people from the US. Like in, for example, in, in, in Estonia, like the highest praise that they give you is normalne, which means normal. And in, in the US, even the smallest thing is like, this is amazing. And it's like, and they both mean the, cell, the same. They both mean, yeah, it's fine, basically. <laughs> so, it, but in one-in-ones, you can, a little, you can dig a little bit deeper and specifically also ask the people who maybe don't want to speak up in groups, which is actually something that you should probably also do if you're co-located, what their fears are, where they think you have blind spots that you might not be aware of and really not doing this like, are you happy with this or are you not? Like, you're not going to get like an honest answer to this. But like, what are the aspects of what I talked about yesterday that you really liked? Or what are the things where you're unsure about? What are the things that you think I forgot about? Is there anything that I can answer you? And there is another book, Gretchen Rubin, The Four Tendencies. She is a sociologist who analyzes motivation. And she has these four tendencies, whether people like are more intrinsical or extrinsically uh, motivated. And then depending on what your motivation is, you need to really understand what's going on or what you need is mostly accountability. So if you know that there's somebody who just, they just want you to tell them what to do and then they're going to do it and they get gratification out of knowing that they're doing the right thing. And on the other uh, end of the spectrum, you have people who need to really understand the logic of this. if they have not bought in themselves, they're never going to really do it. So like by knowing who in your team needs what type of explanation in order to do their their work well, you can adjust your communication. And since you'll have to repeat yourself 20,000 times anyway, you can also do this in those one-in-ones. And I think one-in-ones, they are for this. They Like one-in-ones are not to check whether you have worked on that issue that we defined yesterday. I can see that in Asana or GitLab or whatever you have your issues. One-in-one are to figure out like where are the where are you stuck and not necessarily where you're stuck because the engineer didn't do what they were supposed to do on time but where are you stuck metaphorically speaking where f- towards where we are going like where are the things that i can help you unmeddle in your brain because you don't have clarity around why we are going into this direction because as a product lead i want every single person on the ship knowing that the island we are rowing towards is over there 
and like there is a clear and maybe it's far away and we need like a magnifying glass to actually see it but there is a destination that we're going towards we are not just floundering around in the sea trying to survive the storm absolutely i spent so much time with remote team members on that on that kind of stuff when i've been a product manager at different companies it's so important because you know, your engineers ideally are spending a lot of time kind of helping move the ball forward, which means you're in a lot of meetings and you get a lot of updates that they don't. And so I found that it is very effective to be kind of the filter for those people and disseminate the p- different pieces of information that are important to them. You know, sometimes they, oh, you know, that, but inf- oh, they don't even care about that. That doesn't matter. Like that's not, that's not what gets them going, but like this thing, they, they want to feel in the loop and connected to when those things are happening. And so like making them feel connected is super important. So like being that filter for different team members is definitely important. And the only time you really have to be able to do that, in my experience, is kind of having peer one-on-ones with some of the key players on your team. That said, one thing I did want to ask you is, you know, thinking about kind of like, okay, you're going to have these peer one-on-ones with some of the people on your team. And like, you have to think about communicating across different mediums to get to make sure it hits everybody. Do you think the ideal team team size for product teams is different if you're a remote team versus in person? That is a very good question. Like product teams, it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic because like in the support world, support teams can be up to 16 people before the, the team is split because the work that they do is very streamlined, let's say. While in product, I think the per PM, the breaking point, for me seems to be around five, six PMs that directly report to you. And then you need to put in another layer, not necessarily because you can't do that many one-in-ones, but because every PM basically works on their own thing with engineers, with designers, etc. So it multiplies very, very quickly. So, and to keep this kind of streamlined and untangled, because you're not only going to have one-in-ones with those PMs, you're probably also having to uh, having one-in-ones with the designers, maybe with some engineers, not every yeah, week, tech, but like yeah, the tech over time. So th- you will have like lots of conversations with lots of people. So probably uh, PMs, PMs only four or five is probably somewhere after which you have to think about splitting and getting like a gr- group product manager or something. What about individual pods? When you start to think about like your fraction of a designer who may be on a couple of teams and, you know, your tech lead and then a handful of engineers, when you think about like just an individual PM, an individual contributor, do you think the ideal size or like the number of engineers that should be on their team changes at all based on whether they're remote or in person? I don't think so, because I don't think you need more or less people to actually get the work done, whether you're remote or in office. Okay. I wasn't sure if maybe you thought there would be a difference because of communication overhead or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like what I do think is that you need to invest a lot more into like making sure that communication is streamlined so that when an engineer moves from one PM to the next PM, they don't have to relearn the ropes all over again. But there is some kind of comparability on how information is passed onwards, either via a tool or via rituals that are crea- that are like comparable between the different PM lines. And rituals doesn't necessarily mean meetings. It can also be like we do our daily stand-up via Slack and then it just goes into another channel. Like stuff like this, but that as a that you basically have to adapt to the product organization's style of communication more than to the individual person. 
So we've, we've talked actually a bunch about meetings and rituals. So let's dig into that a little bit more. How do you avoid meeting and Zoom overload as a re- remote PM? Because we've talked about like, you're going to have peer one-on-ones, you're going to meet with whoever you report to, you know, like what meetings do you find are really important that need to happen? And maybe like, which of those can maybe be rituals done in another form? Hmm. So for meetings, I like to... Define like there's different types of meetings. There is the absolutely only social meeting, which is the easiest to kill, but I think it's the most important one to maintain. So like having your regular one-on-ones and your regular team meetings just to make sure that people actually see each other in a remote environment, I think is very important. Then there's update meetings, which I think are ones that can very easily be replaced with written updates or Loom updates. And then people can basically comment on the on the timestamp or something. They are, many managers have a hard time to kill status update meetings though. <laughs> because yeah. as a manager, it feels like they are saving you time. And maybe they actually do save you time because you don't have to read all those updates. They're being brought to you, but it does not save time for anyone else. So let's get rid of those. Then there's discussion meetings. I think discussion meetings only make sense if you have a very clear, this is the situation at this point, and this is what we're going to discuss beforehand, which means that a discussion meeting needs to be preempt by some kind of documentation or some type of this is the problem statement. And whether you read this problem statement, have everybody read it on the call to make sure everybody read it because no one ever reads anything before uh, the call. Like, let's just be real there. <laughs> or you manage to have people see this before. It doesn't matter. And then you didn't discuss it. And then there are decision meetings. And decision meetings, unless you are very, very experienced remote company, decision meetings will probably be, me- be meetings. I have seen decisions happen only async um, at automatic and then like the decision discussion would be like over 48 hours instead of within one meeting but most companies will probably have a meeting for that and then there's the like if you know this meeting that we're going to call is it's a decision meeting okay then let's make very very sure that we know what is the decision that we are going to take and what is going to happen if we do not come to a decision because that is usually the driver to actually make a decision happen. Like if we do not come to a, a conclusion on this meeting, then by default, we are going to do this other thing. And this is also something when we do feature discussions. Like if we do not dis- the, come to another outcome, then this feature will develop like this because this is basically defa- default. And this usually brings people into action. And if this is a discussion meeting... And there, at the beginning of the meeting, there is no baseline for what we are going to discuss. Then cancel the meeting because you obviously don't really have anything to discuss. And I think the whole, you can cancel meetings. Like you can show up to a meeting and then realize that you no one is prepared and this is not the best use of the time and you can leave the meeting. Like that is totally fine. There is no meeting police. Like Google Calendar is not going to not let you leave Zoom. Like that's not a thing. Or when somebody invites you to a meeting and you're like, I know nothing about this topic or I'm not really, I, this is my eighth meeting of the day. I know that my brain will basically be toast by the time. You can decline meetings. Like just because the invite, the yes is big and blue on your Google invite doesn't mean that you have to press the big and blue button. You can take the gray one that says no and like not go. Because if it's really important and if your specific input is needed, like somebody will reach out and maybe you can give you input differently. Like I don't think we should, and that's one of the big things when you're remote. Meetings are not sacred. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that the big one, they're making it safe to decline meetings. That's a big cultural thing. I think actually mm-hmm. you brought that up when we when, when, when we talked on the on the Lighthouse podcast about on the leadership side. I think we may actually embed that one as like further reading in this one. <laughs> but yeah, making it safe to decline meetings, I think is important. And I think as a product manager, one of the things to recognize though is if it's your meeting and you see some of your team can't make it, keep in mind that you they may still want to know the outcome. Like I know I have uh, I have meetings all the time where my business partner Eddie's like, "Hey, I don't think I'm going to join that meeting, but can you give me the TLDR after?" And I'll give him the two or three things that actually mattered to him and you do the math in your head and you're like, "I don't think he needed to be on 45 minutes of a call." When to get the a three download, line update, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the three <laughs> line update that he got, you know, and, and, and he knows, like, you know, in our again, in our case, we have this great relationship, and this is something you have to build with people you work with. Is if I give you one, if one of those three bullets I give you actually makes you go, whoa, 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 what is that? You have to have the maturity then to come back to me and say, hey. Jason, it sounds like we need to have a quick 10 minute phone call to understand that or go back and forth and chat or whatever medium it is. But like, I also realize that either you read it, go, cool, got it. Great. You saved me 45 minutes. I read it in 30 seconds. Or the occasional red flag comes up. You need to make sure you've built that relationship with your team that they can say, hey, okay, that is surprising to me. I don't think I understand that. I have a question. I'm going to actually ask you about it and either dig in, have a quick five-minute call, give them a loom, whatever format it needs to be, that's fine. But you need to realize that it shouldn't just be binary. Either they're in the meeting, they're in the loop, or they're not showing up and they know nothing. Like you have to, you or someone on the team has to be proactive to then share with the people who maybe don't need to be there, but do need to be informed and like understand that gradient to help them out so that, hey, realize you're giving your team 45 minutes back but there were three takeaways they should know about. Yeah, and don't don't just record the meeting and send them the recording. Oh, yeah, nobody wants to listen to a meeting recording. Like, <laughs> I don't know, but like there, there's so many companies where all the important meetings are recorded and then you can, can find them in the cloud. And I would love to see the statistics about how many people actually... Re- because meetings, meetings by themselves are usually not very entertaining. Having to like listen to a meeting that you're not even participating in, that's like, it's a, it's just a waste of time. Like write up those three decisions that were made and these five insights that are really, and put them underneath at least in the recording so that every nobody has to watch this again. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I think the other thing that people don't appreciate is when we communicate verbally, like, you know, Valentina, you and I are talking right now. If we were writing a blog post, like of the concepts we go over today, they would be so much shorter than the transcription. Like like verbal communication is actually horribly inefficient when you read it if it's a long mess, if it's like a long conversation. Like a five-minute loom isn't that big a deal. But if you ever look at like a transcript of your average podcast, it's like 30 pages. Like it is inefficient whether you're like, I know people are like, oh yeah, we use this like app and it like transcribes everything, like every meeting it transcribes. And it's like, do you have any idea how inefficient that is? No one wants, like if no one wants to listen to the actual audio recording, even fewer people want to actually read the transcript unless you can tell them like an exact timestamp of like go to 32 minutes and just listen to 30 till minute 35 or read till minute 35. Like unless you're really curating it for them. A meeting recording or a transcription of an entire long meeting is just something that's going to overwhelm anybody. It's just not going to happen. 
Yeah. The only things that, that be recordings is actually when you have like a speaker coming in or something that is used to basically entertain people more than having discussions. Yeah. Or I will say customer interviews. So like when we're doing, we're, when we're doing like a, we just did a case study with a large customer for Lighthouse. I recorded that I took notes and got it started. But now there's some people on the marketing team that are listening to it because it's just filled with gems about a customer. And I certainly had engineers who they didn't listen to every customer interview I did, but they, they told me like, Hey, sometimes I take walks to think about like an engineering problem and I'll put one of your interviews in and I'll, I'll just listen to it in the background. And like, that gives me an idea. I know it's not every customer, but like, it gives me a piece of something you said. And like, you know, once I started knowing engineers did that, I would actually flag in my product specs, like, you know, all the recordings are in this random Dropbox folder. But if you want the best one, if you're only going to listen to one that you're curious about, like, here's what I think was the best of my interviews. And so again, you're like learning the communication styles of everyone on your team, realizing that like, how long does it really take you to think like, hey, I interviewed eight customers for this feature. How long does it take to you to think which is most representative or the best interview I did or is like most helpful for what we decided to do? I, I, I think that's like 10 seconds for you to think about. If but that, like that long, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But like that moment of curation, you just add a little note at the end of your product spec, like, hey, all the interviews are here, but the best one is this one you know, customer X, I think it just, those are the kinds of things that like your team appreciates and will make your team better because now people who would listen are more likely to like listen to a really good interview of yours or like hear the one that you think is most important. Like mm -mm. that's a win-win all around. It also increases trust because you are basically allowing them to look how how you're coding like they they see exactly what you're doing in those interviews and that you are really the insights that you bring to them are actually based in reality and not just something that you made up over your lunch break yes and that is honestly one of the biggest challenges i think of any pm is you are guilty until proven innocent of oh, yeah. being <laughs> like a master bser so to speak as a product manager and so if you want to build credibility with your team going the extra mile here to curate some of this information and show some of your work is especially important when you're like starting with a new team, starting with new people or starting a new job, build that credibility up front. And these are kind of the small things that add up to build kind of, uh, you know, credit points with your, with your, especially your skeptical engineering team, if you have any of those. Uh, of you can also invite them on the calls as silent flies on the wall. Usually you have to really, really like promise them, no, you don't have to put on your camera. I'm not going, I'm just going to say, and there's somebody from the engineering team listening in, which some customers actually also really appreciate, like knowing that a technical person is on the call. And then you can just listen in. And if you don't want to go leave anymore, like just leave, leaves it on so it doesn't look like you dropped off and <laughs> leave. And that's also that, like, that is, that is actually very one of my helpful. Yeah, that's one of my favorite hacks actually to get annoying bugs that haven't been fixed, fixed. Because in my experience, if you have a really talented engineer, they take great pride in features they build. And so if they're on one of those calls, even if it's only 30 seconds where the customer mentions this little annoying bug, I've had engineers fix the bug before the call's over because they, they're like, I can't have this blemish <laughs> in my product. Boom. And they get it. And they're still kind of half listening, but they're also like trying to figure out how to fix yeah, the yeah. bug. And so like whether it happens in the next week or two or it happens live on the call, like I've found that is one of the best ways to make engineers take more pride in their product is if they hear the customer literally say something's annoying, it means so much more than you as the PM saying it. Not because there's anything wrong with you, but just because if they care about making customers happy, then hearing it directly from them is literally the best thing. 
Yeah, and it makes it more real because they can see how their work has an impact on people that are using the product. It's very different hearing that from the person who's like living through that impact than hearing it for you. Like, of course, the truth is the same, but it's very dif difficult to see somebody who bleeds than telling you this person is bleeding. <laughs> are you a self-taught product manager? Do you feel like there's gaps in your skills holding you back? Are you comfortable teaching others how you do product management? The fact is no one learns product management in school. You have to learn by cobbling together resources, reading books and blog posts, seeking out mentors, and learning on the job through trial and error. I've been there. I was a self-taught PM too, and I was lucky to learn from some of the best product minds in Silicon Valley. Now I want to teach you everything I've learned. To do that, I've written blog posts, shared knowledge on these podcasts with great guests, and now I'm doing a limited number of coaching and consulting engagements. If you're looking to level up as a product leader and want to tune up you and your product team skills, then go to becustomerdriven.com and sign up for a free call to discuss your needs and how I may be able to help you. Again, go to becustomerdriven.com. So the, before we move on, I did want to go back to one thing that I, I think if I was a, a junior listed on this, I may want some clarity on. You talked about discussion meetings and decision meetings. I think decision meetings are pretty clear that, you know, hey, we're making an important decision on something. Maybe it's like de-scoping part of a feature. Maybe it's making a hard call on, on, on something, or maybe it's setting a ship date that we're going to hard commit to. What makes a good uh, discussion meeting? And when do you actually need to have that discussion meeting? Because I feel like these are the kinds of trap meetings that can like fill up your calendar really fast. And all they really are is like glorified status updates or check-ins as opposed to actually moving the ball forward. So like, what is a good a discussion meeting? And like, when do you actually need to do that synchronously? Yeah, hopefully your good discussion meetings happen at the beginning of your, I don't know, in at Klaus, it would be shape up cycles or in, in agile, it would be when your sprint starts, like at the very beginning, before you actually make any decisions, you already as the PM, you probably have curated a very clear problem statement if you haven't back to the drawing board. <laughs> and then you present that statement before the discussion meeting starts. And there's two ways to do this. You can send out a disc uh, you can send out a paper. No one is going to read it. You ask them to read it the first five minutes of the call or you create a loom video of yourself doing it that's only five minutes long and then play this video as you start the call to prevent yourself from going off like into some random direction because that way you know it will only be a five minute introduction and then you're going to discuss either depending on the people who are there if it's like your engineering and design team you can already discuss like ideas about how this could be built without any decisions just to get an idea about what potential is in the room already maybe which blind spots are there where do you need to investigate more in terms of feasibility or in terms of what's already out there in the market but it's really just to see not just it is to see what knowledge is in the room what knowledge is available to you and where do you need to seek out more knowledge that's what the discussion is for and it's very clear we're not going to decide anything here we're going to just discuss what's the status quo where we want to go because the decision what exactly we're going to do about is that is a different stage and i think this actually kind of leads into to my next question is so i think one of those really important things and i think if people are critical of product teams being remote this is this is like the go-to criticism and so how do you bring kind of those creative collaborative juices 
to remote like a good in-person whiteboarding session. Like I will say that like even though I've been doing remote for most of my career and sometimes hybrid stuff, still I will say the biggest high I get as a product manager is definitely whiteboarding sessions. And and so like how how do you recreate it or create something equally effective to be innovative and creative when you're like, hey, we've got our designer in the room, we've got our engineers in the room, we got product representing the customer in the room, and we're trying to come up with the best solution within the constraints we have. How do you kind of get those creative juices going and how do you create the best collaboration when you're not like all sitting in a room together at a whiteboard? Mm-hmm. So I definitely like you need to sit together at some point. Doesn't have to be the whiteboard, probably shouldn't be the whiteboard, but as humans, we are hardwired to kind of connect to other human frequency, let's say. So like having, knowing how another person responds to humor or having had dinner with another person, maybe a glass of wine actually will then improve every single creative session that you have with them for the next six months at the very least. So like do have these in-person meetings. But when it gets to like ideation and creativity in a remote setting, I love Figma. Well, actually, the designers love Figma, but <laughs> I have made to love Figma. I also like Miro and Jamboard. Jamboard is included with every Google suite. So that is, if you don't want to do, if if you get pushback from security for using Miro or something, just use Jamboard with it, with which is easily available, and it also allows you to like do sticky notes and like think through what you can do there. And as a PM learn how to facilitate workshops because your first, you can brush over not being a very good facilitator or presenter when you're with everybody in the room because somebody is going to pick up the slack that does not happen in online meetings. So you need to discover which are good icebreakers that I can use. How can I best use Google Zoom breakout, like Zoom breakout rooms? Like what are all these small things that I can do to make this meeting more entertaining? Because if I say, okay, we're going to make a five, we're going to do a five minute coffee break. People are not going to mingle and talk to each other. They're going to read <laughs> their emails. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. like, how can you bring this dynamism o- online? And I think there you can learn a lot from like online facilitators. And there's, I can probably find a, a couple of resources for you to put into the show notes. That would be great. But yeah. it's not rocket science. It's learnable, but you have to like look into it because only product knowledge when you're remote is not enough. You also need to how engage people over the screen because to be very honest, you are always competing with TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe with Twitter because TikTok requires voice, but you're competing with a whole array of other things that are on the fingertip, like on the mouse click, only a mouse click away. Oh, yeah, yeah, especially you never know what push notifications they're getting and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, and I think also you have to think a lot about dynamics because I think uh, things get amplified remotely, I guess. At least in my experience, you know, your extroverts are going to going to have plenty to say and a lot to talk about and your introverts are going to potentially retreat even further than they would in a meeting. And so, you know, knowing when and how to call on people who maybe haven't had as much to say 
is, I think, a particularly important skill then in those kinds of discussions. Yeah, and also using different kinds of discussions that are not just everybody is in a circle and looking at each other. Like, for example, there is, uh, I, I'm now blanking on how this it's called, but you basically, everybody writes down their idea and then passes the sticky note to the next person who adds something to that idea. And then it gets passed on to the next person. And then th that person also adds their idea. And that way you refine as many ideas as you, ha as you have people in the room. And because it's done in writing, it's actually very, very great. It's good, good for introverts who have who can think about it and write about it and that actually works online a lot better than it works in real life because you can like add as much text as you want to sticky notes that are on a Miro board I think Miro even has a template for that one I'm, I'm going to 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 find the the which where it probably has a proper name so I can find that proper name for yeah you. <laughs> no that's great That's great. I know actually one of the things that surprised me that I actually really like that actually is harder to do in person that that works great in remote is once we're at a stage where we have mock-ups and designs from our designer, but they're not finalized. Like in our, our case, our, our designer uses Adobe XD, similar enough to Figma. And so we'll literally have a couple versions up on the screen and we'll talk about them and they will like hot <laughs> like change things live and we'll be like, oh, what about if we did this? What about if we did that? Oh, if we couldn't do that, like how would that change this feature? And like just hot dragging things around is actually really great when you're building a, you know, a, a web-based product because then you're literally like, oh, this is exactly what, this is literally exactly what the customer is going to see and we're changing it live. And, you know, I would say the first few times we did it, Our designer, I don't think, was totally comfortable with it, but like we realized it kind of works. So they got better and better at certain controls and certain options, having them ready to the point where later on they started just realizing like, oh, we're probably going to be comparing those two things. I'm just going to have that ready. <laughs> and so those things, those adaptations, you know, seem to get better over time. The, is, the other things good. that work better in remote is the option to actually comment on designs whenever you, you have time for it. So if I can't get to the meeting or something, but I have the Figma li link, I can still add like comments where I'm like, okay, here this, I'm not convinced with this, or how can we make this a little bit more visible or what happens if this or that, like you can put it then as comments and then get back to it on a later time. Yeah, absolutely. No, this is, this is uh, great stuff. And definitely we'll put some links to some of these different options in the show notes. You mentioned a little bit about kind of building that team chemistry and understanding. So I'm curious, how often do you think remote product teams need to get together in person? When you're thinking about specifically a pod, like I'm a PM, I have a designer on my team, a tech lead and a handful of engineers. How often do you think that core group that builds things together need to actually get face to face in the same, same city, you know, break bread, eat dinner, get coffees, be together? How often do you think that ideally needs to happen to kind of keep that chemistry and, and rapport with each other? Two to three times a year should be sufficient. If you want more, you, you, you like from if it's more than three times, you get to a point where the people who have I don't know parents to care for, kids at home, etc., get like get a lot of stress around because they have to organize so many things. While we, up to three times, it's still usually it kind of works. And one of these times can be if the company gets together once a year anyway, you can make sure that one of these days is team day or pod day. 
and then people can get together this one day as the the team or whatever smaller unit you want to use and have them do things together and then the rest of the time it's like a company wider thing and then like once or twice a year probably on opposite ends of the year you make sure that they get together as a team and then it's important to like i would always make it at least two full days together and these days should be partially work and partially fun so i wouldn't get have them get together only to like party and get drunk and uh, and play bubble football but i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't yeah. get them together only to do like work but rather like get an airbnb that's big enough that everybody can be there together have breakfast together, do scoping in the morning, do whiteboard sessions in the morning, and then in the afternoon, do like fun stuff, explore the region. I do do wine tasting, whatever flows your boat. Like, and do something where you can actually bond over being fellow human beings. And then, because the next morning you're going to work again, you're going to take it easy in the evening. There will probably be like some alcohol and shenanigans, but by before midnight, most people will probably be in bed or just sitting on the couch and like trading stories. So that the next morning they are functional again. So uh, like getting this, having fun, but also working together because what you want these people to do is discover what do we have in common and what is the kind of humor that you have? Because especially humor translates very, very badly into writing. But if I know that this person has a super, super dry humor, because I have laughed at his or her jokes while we were on a meetup. Then when I see it on Slack, I won't feel attacked because I know it's the way they communicate humor. And it's not that like they think I'm an asshole. So like getting the, these nuances, like you only get them out of getting together from time to time. The other part of that that I, that I was just thinking about is, you know, thinking a level up then as a, as a product leader, constructing pods potentially. How much would you think about like geolocation with that? Like I can understand hiring all over the world. There are talented people everywhere. And we know that there's a lot of things you can now do asynchronously. But I'm also thinking when you start to think about kind of how interrupt driven this is for people with families, you know, another layer to it that I've learned is I've just lived around the United States is like travel time is a big deal. Like when I lived in San Francisco and I wanted to visit my parents in Pennsylvania, you know, it was, I would lose a day each way on travel. When I lived in New York City, I could take a train to visit my parents. And so I literally had times where I had like a phone call and I'm like, Hey dad, what are you up to? And he's like, not much. And I'm like, cool. How about I come visit you? And like three hours later, I'm like yeah, at yeah. the train station. There's a very big difference there, right? Like, like, if, like you could potentially, like, if you're thinking about someone with a family, if the place where you're getting together is say commutable, like they may even, like, it may not be nearly as big a deal or it, you know, those two days of travel or more, if it's even more geographically spread out, those multiple days of travel lost are days where they're not productive at work and they're away from their family. So I'm curious, like, do you think like, pr should product leaders try at all to construct teams to maybe have it be somewhat geographically intentional? It depends very much on the type of company that you are trying to build. Because just because there are good people everywhere, that doesn't mean that you have to hire good people everywhere. Like you can, for example, say, okay, we are only going to hire in Europe because and Canada because we want the people that we hire to have access to healthcare and 
<laughs> and like pensions or whatever. And this is a value-based decision that we have made. And if we really, we really want to hire somebody from the US, they will have to move to Canada. Or if somebody from India wants to work to, with us, they will have to move to, I don't know, Spain or something. So you can make that decision. And you can also make this, this, that decision and say, okay, we, our support team, we are going to spread it all over the world because we want to do 24-7. But our engineering team, we really want them to be a maximum of three time zones apart. And that's why we only hire in Latin America or only hire in Europe or only hire in whatever. So like by you can make these decisions and they should be conscious decisions, which is very like most people don't think about, oh, what are we going to do with our three product teams like five years from now when we are 600 people? But I think you should like as you're as you're creating your product team, think about because if once you have decided, OK, our team will get together every two months and then you hire somebody from like a completely different continent and you're like, whoa, this got ex this got expensive very, very quickly. Plus this person is now being flown in from Australia with a seven hour time lag in their brain, can't really function because they are completely jet lagged. Like that doesn't help anyone either. So the question is, do you want to focus more on async being all over the world, which probably means you have to have longer meetups, maybe just two meetups a year, but they will have to be a week because for a day or two days of meeting, you can't expect people to do like 20 hours of travel. It's just, it's not feasible. So you say, okay, we're only going to do two meetups a year. One is our big meetup of the entire company and one is only of the product division. We're going to make it a division-wide meeting because that way, if we change pods during the year, people will still need, know each other. And we're going to do this from Monday to Friday and make it a lot longer and we're going to see how can we help the people that have kids or the people who have pets to make this as less disruptive as possible so it depends you can but you need to think about it before you decide <laughs> yes as as in so many things nuance is the name of the game i know for instance i worked at a company where we had our lead designer was in australia and even with our lead designer in Australia and everybody else in the US, that was still extremely difficult, even just for communication, because 8 a.m. in Australia was 3 p.m. Pacific, and that meant it was 6 p.m. Eastern. And so there were a lot of frustrated engineers on the East Coast who were like, hey, that's like family dinner time. Like, like I can't have all... I'm willing to occasionally miss or have to push back family dinner time. But not once a week. Yeah. Correct. Or not multiple, especially not multiple times a week. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that created a lot of tension. And then they, we actually did get them to move to San Francisco. And it was like, wow, now there's like five or six hours a day where we can meet and do company all hands and things like that. You know, it, it made a huge, huge difference. And so, yeah, I think you have to be mindful of that construction if you want your teams to operate well, or you have to think about the construction from a, hey, we are asynchronous. We are asynchronous first. And we're, you know, for instance, that means you need to shift how you hire to say like, hey, this is going to be a writing first culture. Like we're not going to patchwork over these things. We need to now have filters that filters specifically for what an asynchronous team needs. Like you, you, uh, you know, Lucia Valentina long ago worked at Automatic, and they're extremely, as I understand it, because they've been a long time White House customer. Like they are 
extremely written driven to the point where they test people to make sure that they can handle being a uh, written first The entire culture. interview process is written. Yeah, exactly. So I think you like being intentional is really important. And so if you're listening to this and you're a product leader, like this is one of the things to really, really think about as you, you know, construct a team. You know, if you're building building out the product org now and you're thinking about your first pods, like one of the things you can do to help this, I think, is think about like, hey, I could put engineer A or engineer B on team one or team two. If you can cluster them in a way that makes it easier for whatever you're going to you know, move towards, like, take advantage of that. Like, if it's all if it's all the same to everybody else, then like, hey, having more time zone overlap or making it easier for them to all meet together, you know, is an advantage you should take advantage of. But also realize that like, what you do with your first few set of pods that you set up, like, as you build more pods, you need to keep you need to keep that same intentionality or change the culture to match what you are constructing based on, you know, who and, and where people are. Thinking about then people who may be switching from an in-person team to a remote first org, whether it's they're changing jobs or like many companies through the pandemic here have just kind of said, maybe we don't need that office space. What are the biggest things that like a product manager should do to maybe prepare for that? Like either, hey, I just accepted a job and it's actually my first time being in a remote first org, or I'm realizing that my company made the shift and I I need to kind of level myself up. What are what are kind of the things that they should be thinking about? What can what can a product manager do to, you know, literally proactively think of this as like a career shift for themselves and like realize they need to, you know, like changing sports, you need to build different muscles or or you know, adjust your body by by training in different ways. How how should a product manager kind of shifting towards a remote first career? What kind of skills and things should they be building up? So a little bit we already like touched on it like communication etc at the very beginning of the of this conversation so the communication part i think is very important and then uh, because remote is not really a helpful descriptor of camp companies it's very important to figure out as soon as possible how does communication happen in this company and how does collaboration happen here if it's your own company that is shifting towards remote first it's probably a lot easier to influence these kind of things and say okay i for my team i've known you for years you know me these are the types of communication that we're going to use this is how we're going to color collaborate you can be a little bit more prescriptive let's say if you're moving into a new company and they are remote like figure try to figure out first what does remote actually mean for them like what does that mean in terms of communication what do i have to write where and when how do other people communicate look a lot at like how their slack or meets or whatever they use to to write or to chat or to be to be in touch like what is happening there and have lots of one in ones and ask not like engineers designers your boss peers people from completely different the lady from marketing uh, or from uh, from accounting and ask them how do you get things done here like wh what are the things that frustrate you What are the things, if I had this problem, how would you recommend me? Not what's written in the handbook, like, but what would you really do? Because there's always like this other second way of how collaboration really happens that you can't really write down anywhere. And you need, in an office, you can observe what people do. And you can't do that in a remote environment because a lot of things do happen under, like where you can't see them. So like making sure that you speak to people, you can also ask, if 
I, if I have a question, whom do you think I should ask? Because in every company, there's like three to five people who know everybody. I have their fingers kind of everywhere and know everything. And then make sure that you find something that you have in common with these people. And this might sound a little bit manipulative, like, but you want to be friends with these people because they are the inadvertent gatekeepers. And sometimes they might not even be aware of this, but they can give you really good insights about how to navigate that specifically company culture. And you can probably also do this if you're in office because there's also also like always like the the the, the office uh, mom or whatever, like somebody who kind of keeps things together. Find these people and make sure that you become friends. And what I mean with make sure to become friends is technically you can become friends with almost any person, especially at work. If you stay clear of some topics and at work, that should be relatively easy. Like maybe don't discuss abortion rights or <laughs> I don't know, yeah. immigration politics with the person yeah. that you want to be friends with because you might have different opinions. But we have for just because we're humans, we have things in common. Like most of us have a pet that we love or a child that we love or like childhood trauma that we are trying to get <laughs> over or I don't know, we run or we climb or we There's hobbies, all something. kinds of stuff. And yeah. if you can figure that out, uh, and then you don't need to become a full-flown, I don't know, ultramarathon runner to talk to me, for example. But if you can share like a photo about uh, this really nice path at the river where you live, I'll be super happy that you recognize that I'm a runner and that might be like a nice place to run. And that can like be th this, the basis for a relationship that then helps me to figure out how to navigate this new company. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. You find those glue people in the organization and they they can help you figure out kind of things like, you know, I think the the fun analogy I like is like, you know, if you think about all of those movies where someone has like their first day in jail and they like make friends with the person who knows how everything runs and like those guys are going to beat you up, you know, those, yeah, those exactly, guys don't yeah. mess with them. Those guys are friendly as long as you don't do X and like, oh, never go over there. Like, like you want the non-prison version of, of like those kinds of people that tell you like, hey, here's the third rail. Hey, here's here's how to actually do X and Y. And, oh, I know that, you know, this person in that department's great for that. And frankly, I think one of the nice things about being a product manager is, at least in my experience, a lot of times someone on the product team is often one of those people. Because in order to be an effective PM, you often have to communicate across teams. And so they naturally are having to build a number of those relationships depending on what part of the product they're working on. And so it can often be easy to find the first one of those, and then they can help you identify some of the other ones in other departments and things like that. Yeah. 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 And one of the easiest question that you can ask is like, wh who's another person you think I should be talking to? Yeah. They that's a to great tell one. You. Yes. So those are all great. Like for first day, first week, first month ki kinds of things to do. I'm thinking, okay, if you're interviewing, like, uh, you know, frankly, I think one of the patterns we have here in America that I've noticed a lot, because I live in Austin, Texas, which is a net place where people are moving to right now. And a lot of that, frankly, comes down to you could afford to buy a house here. And so what you have is a lot of people mid-career are leaving places like New York City and Silicon Valley and things like that, coming to Austin because of the cost of housing is a little bit better here, but you still get a little bit of a tech pulse. But then they may work for a company uh, anywhere because 
you know, one of the benefits is you find a job that's remote. Now you're not tethered to where you were living before. And now you're like, well, let's move to someplace affordable that checks a bunch of boxes for me. And so I, I, a lot of people end up making that move mid-career. But then what that means is making sure you choose the right remote company. So what kinds of questions would you recommend somebody ask to kind of tell like, hey, does the company do remote well or do they do it in the flavor of remote that might be good for me? Mm-hmm. Actually, I have a very long LinkedIn post that I'm going to, oh, to, awesome. to yes, share with you to with me. exactly these Absolutely. questions. <laughs> Give me a couple of highlights. We'll link to the rest of it in the show notes. That's perfect. It, it, it comes down to what does your remote, okay, what does remote mean in terms of location? Does this mean that I have to work from home? Because that is still remote. Or does that mean I can remote from specific pre-approved places that I have to tell you as the company because otherwise the liability insurance won't cover me? Or does this mean I can work from anywhere under specific, like there are specific rules, but I can work from anywhere? Does this mean I have to always work from the same location? Or can I go to my parents and work from there? still the same country? Or can I go to my boyfriend or girlfriend who lives in Canada and not in the US? Can I still work from there or is there a problem? So like have them define what remote in terms of location actually means for them. Then the next one is communication. Like how do you communicate? Is it more asynchronously? Is it more synchronously? And does this require for me to be online on specific times of the day. And I'm not saying that this is anything negative. Like, for example, I have kids and I'm online always when the kids are in school. So like for me, it's actually not a problem when a company says me, you need to be online in our core hours from 10 to 4 p.m. It's like, that's great because school time. While for other people, that might be an absolute no-go because they love to take their, I don't know, three-hour siesta lunch break as they do in Spain. So for them, it would be like, oh, you can do whatever you want. Just make sure that people know where you are, whatever. Like how flexible are are these, these work setups? And then finally, the third one is belonging. How does your company create belonging? Like, do you have different Slack channels where people can talk about stuff that's non-work related? Or are you like Basecamp? or now they're called differently, but formally Basecamp, is like non-work related stuff absolutely off topic. Do you have meetups from time to time? If so, how long? Do I, how much time in advance do I have to plan for them? Because one thing is, if, is, if you tell me now, eight months from now, we're going to have a week a meetup, that's probably not a big deal. But if you tell me, a single mom of twins, we're going to have a meetup in three weeks, I will be scrambling a lot to like make this fit my life. So like how, what is the horizon of your planning, which as a product manager actually is also very interesting because it tells you a lot about how sales and marketing and product marketing will think in terms of planning, because usually those happen very much in the same cadence. So if a company can't tell you when the next meetup is in the next six months, they probably can't tell you which features or which solutions they have planned for the next six months either, which is something that you may or may not be comfortable with because that's the thing. Everybody has different life experiences and different stations in life. So at 25, you probably have very different expectations or very different needs than you have at 40, than you have at, I don't know, 50, etc. So like by knowing what is it that you look for and then asking the right questions so that the company can define, because honestly, a lot of companies don't really know what their remote means 
get themselves because they're still figuring it out. So by asking these questions, you can actually help them to figure it out. Yeah. And I would also <laughs> encourage you to ask some of your future peers when they interview you some of these questions because mm-hmm. you may get a different answer. From uh, HR than from them. That is very true. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some people will have their, you know, their suit and tie on perfectly. And then you'll, you know, talk to the people in the back room and find out it's a different story. So I would also just encourage you, and this is true for frankly, any aspect of understanding a company's culture in person or otherwise. And then one yes, that, that, that may be relevant depending on how, how career oriented you are. How do promotions work? Do you have a product management track? What what does it how are you going to assess whether I'm successful or not? Because your charisma alone, which might be enough in an office, won't be enough in a remote environment. So if they do not have like if their performance reviews are not somehow standardized, it will be very, very difficult for you to get ahead. That's a very good point. <laughs> I think a lot of companies struggle with that, but the, these are really good proactive questions to ask, frankly, no matter, no matter your situation. But certainly, I think one of the challenges is especially like post-pandemic is that there's a lot of companies that became remote by accident. And then we're like, oh, this is pretty good. All right, let's do that. And so like, they're going. those are the kinds of companies that are going to have a lot of communication debt. And so while that doesn't necessarily mean you should instantly say no, knowing going in that you're coming into a company where you may have to do some of the wrangling to like improve communication is something you want to know going in so that you don't accept the job and they go like, oh my gosh, this is like a bomb went off. Like, like all these people are upset. No one knows what's going on. Communication's poor. What did I sign up for? You can tease that out when you ask questions during the interview process, whether it seems put together. And this is especially true if you get the chance uh, or, or request the chance to talk to some of your future peers, you know, talk to some of the engineers or the designer that you get to work with, you know, even if it's only like you get 15 minute phone call because you asked for it, you know, asking them how they describe the culture and like listen for that hesitancy in their voice or their, or their comments like, no, honestly, this is the best job I've ever had. Here's why, blah, 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 blah. I love these. Or it's like, well, they may have oversold some of that. You know, either, either way, you, you can learn a lot more by also just trying to ask somebody who looks like they're more in the trenches versus the facade that maybe like HR or somebody is putting on because they're really trying to fill this role. I, I love to ask, so do you ship on Fridays? <laughs> because if they ship yeah. on Fridays, it usually means that they are not very good at planning and executing and assessing how much they can actually do in a week because that it, shipping on Friday means you have scrambled to get, oh my God, I need to get this all done before I leave the door, because I, before I leave. And then always something breaks and then the poor customer support team is... <laughs> yeah, that, that, that ends poorly for everyone. Also, I think just asking in general any rules they have about you know, what rules do you have about shipping? Like I know at Lighthouse, we will never ship on Mondays because we know that Mondays is the busiest day for managers. And so we don't want bugs on the busiest day when managers are using our product. But like that came because we we learned over time their behavior and stuff. And so it's like, is your company reflecting on things so they even learn things like that? Again, just the fact that they have any plan is a strong sign versus like not having any intentionality. And so sometimes I think like, the answer in some of these, yeah, you want to see if they fit kind of what you think you would thrive in, but also just if they have a thoughtful answer at all is uh, a much better sign than if they're kind of seat of the pants, like, oh, we do whatever every team feels is best. And it's like, oh, okay. So I'm going into a company where like, that means there's probably a lot of silos 
and I'm going to need to create a lot of communication. If you're okay with that, that can work fine. But if not, like these are the kinds of landmines you want to look out for because the last thing you want is that sinking feeling on your first day. You go, oh, wow, this is what I just walked into. Yeah. And I think like one thing that we always have to keep in mind, like everyone is it might not be the right fit for you. It might be the right fit for someone else. Like there is no real right and wrong about how to do this remote thing either. Uh, this is a very unpopular opinion, but I think like what for some diehard asynchronous only remote people is absolute heresy for another person might be their absolute dream job. So just make sure that you figure out first what you need to actually thrive in a job and then find an environment where this is at least partially there so that you can draw on it and thrive on it. So we've talked a little bit about this before, and I kind of want to tie it all together here as we're getting toward the end of this awesome discussion. As a product leader, you know, one of the things I'm sure you're thinking a lot about is like developing PMs, thinking about what you want to hire and how you architect uh, teams and organizations. And so there are a lot of people who want to become PMs and, and people who are early in their career, and they realize that like you kind of have to be a little autodidactic, you know, interested in learning a lot of different areas and things. <laughs> when you're a PM already, specific to being a successful remote PM, like if you were thinking of a checklist of some of those skills to develop, you know, what kinds of things would you recommend and how might they do that? So like, I know we've already talked a little bit about communication. How would somebody build that communication muscle? And I think you've also talked about some of those things around like kind of thinking about different mediums to create information. So like, what are some of those like top skills you would think about that? Like, are that checklist of things either you want a PM to have, or you immediately are thinking about, Hey, you're coming on board, but we want to like work and develop this area a lot. What are maybe some of those things that a successful remote PM, whether they're guiding themselves or they're thinking about developing the PMs under them, what, what would be kind of some of those checklists of like remote PMs need to understand these things and maybe a couple of the things you like for them to do that can help them develop those maybe if they're not able to put it into practice, but they, they want to start to learn them. Mm -hmm. So like one, one thing first, I don't think you need to know Scrum, Agile, different uh, methodologies, etc., because those are all learnable. So if you want to become a PM, you should definitely like do courses around these and learn what it is. But as somebody who's hiring PMs, this is not something that is the first thing that I would check. But like, I think communication, can they succinctly describe a problem? And for me, that's the whole, I don't think that product managers need to think outside the box. I think they need to be able to f define the box. Because the clearer they can define, this is the problem we are going to solve now, the easier it is then for engineers or designers or for people who are actually responsible for the solutions to think outside of that box, because there is a box and we all need constraints to actually like flourish, have our creativity flourish. That means they are driven to understand what the real problems are. And that's something that surprisingly enough, you can figure out pretty quickly in interviews because they ask a lot of questions because they want to understand what you are actually trying to understand before like giving you an answer. So like the, the capability to ask questions and to ask them in a way that as the person who is being asked doesn't feel put on the spot which goes a little bit together with like this whole empathy being able to listen to people and then probe deeper a little bit like a well, a little bit like a therapist and actually one of the like a lot of the books that i recommend for product managers to read 
of course, everybody needs to have read like the, the, the classic product management material, but I always recommend a lot of books that are actually more coaching, almost self-help related, because I think the way how we communicate and how we relate to people is still what makes the product management part so magical. Because yes, at the end, there's a product, but actually the product manager is like a conductor in a concert hall. Like you are conducting people, not instruments. The people are playing the instruments, but you are conducting so that a beautiful melody comes out of it. So like this ability of influencing people to do the right thing, to probe deeper, to figure out what moves the other people and to influence and inspire them in a way that is sustainable, which brings me a little bit back to the whole metaphor uh, thing we talked about at the very beginning. I don't want you to build the plane while we are flying it. That's very, very dangerous and probably not realistic. But I do want to, I don't know, create the channels that then will water for a lot, like whatever. Now I'm out of metaphors, but like something more constructive. Like how can they actually uh, speak in a language that makes sense for everybody else around them? And hopefully not just speak, but also write. That's one of the reasons why I think every PM, like there should always be a task somewhere involved where you can like test them on, can they define the box? And if they can define the box, is it something that you as a, as a reader of this box can actually understand quickly? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we'll be doing an episode later, later in the season, specifically on product specs, because I've found literally every person I've ever coached, their product specs have been like both one of their greatest weaknesses and also one of the highest leverage points, because if that, that is defining the box. And set it, and if you have a good product spec to start, both one, you will probably find any weaknesses in your case you're making that, oh, I need to actually go learn a little bit more before I do that. But also you need to go to the other side of it and realize that that is the foundation for the rest of your discussion. And, and that, that creates the guardrails around like, hey, you know what? We only have three weeks we can spend on this feature. What can we do in that time? What do we need to de-scope? What are the most important problems to solve in those three weeks? And, and like define the conversation so that then your designers and engineers can bring their creativity and abilities to bear on the right things. And that's the thing. You need to define the problem, which is like a lot of PM job descriptions say that they're looking for a solution-oriented person. And I'm always like a little bit like, actually, you don't. Like, oh. Yeah. The problem <laughs> is more really important than the solution. <laughs> Yes, exactly, exactly. I'm going to frame that. Yeah, that's that, <laughs> that, that. That is the truth. I mean, because you have other people to help you with the solution, but only the PM usually is able to clearly define the problem. Maybe the designer can help too if they're joining on some of like the usability and customer interviews. But the problem is really the most important thing you can bring to the bring to the table. And the more clearly you can define that, the better. And there's obviously multiple multiple ways to do that. What do you think are good ways, other than just like literally the act of writing on the job, what do you think are things that maybe are good proxies that like a, a, maybe a PM who is kind of in a really small structured environment or someone who wants to move into product and wants to start working on their writing skills now, what kinds of things would you recommend they do maybe to build that work on their communication skills beyond what they may do in their nine to five? Well, writing about what they learn on LinkedIn or on their own blog or in their own newsletter, like you get better at writing through writing. 
And if you are too shy to do it in public, like get a, I don't know, a Substack newsletter and make it paid so that no one is going to like make it so expensive that you know no one is going to sign up. And if they do, then it's like enough enough money so that you're fine with cringing at what you're putting out. <laughs> so, but you need to write. And if you want to see, like, if you want to hone your skill on helping people understand, like, see if there is a topic that you are invested in anyway and answer questions on Quora, on Reddit, on whichever forum you can get your hands on and just write. Do it on a pseudonym if you must, but like get get your word out there so that you can actually practice and that you can also see how people push back where they didn't understand you because that will help you to refine the way you express yourself. And then there's also, there's books like How to Write Well is, is, is one of the classics. Like learn how to write well. Maybe do an, I don't know, an impro workshop that helps you to think on how to express things otherwise. Uh, do a short story. Like there's a lot of things that can actually help you to be a better product manager that don't have like product manager put in bold letters on top of them. Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing is also to like find your voice. Like I know I'm the king of long form. I love writing long form essays. I've written like two more 2000 word essays than I ever thought possible, whether about management leadership, or I actually have a lot of my blog at my name, jasonevanish.com. And what's ironic about the stuff on my, my personal domain is a lot of them, if you look at the dates are from like 2012. And it's like, well, why is that? Well, it's because when I was the first PM at Kissmetrics, I kept going to heat and being like, Hey, Heaton, I don't feel super comfortable with how good I am at X. Who do you know that's really good at it? And he'd give me an intro to a great person and I would sit down with them and I would pick their brain for an hour or two and then be like, this is great. Do you mind if I write a blog <laughs> I post? I would write what it I... down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like the forcing function of trying to write a blog post to explain to somebody else who's a reader who only has my words on the screen to understand what I was doing was a great forcing function to develop my skills. And like, dude, if you go to the last page of my personal blog, I mean, like, it's not great stuff. I only leave it up to prove a point that, like, you may read my something like, oh, Jason's like a really good writer. I could never be that good. Yeah, go go read, like, go to the very beginning. Yeah. Go back to 2008 and read my very first post on my blog. It's not good. It's bad. <laughs> like, but because I stuck with it and I wrote like one post a month for a number, number of years, and then occasionally I wrote more often than that, you can absolutely develop your voice and figure out what you're good at. And so maybe you're not like me. Maybe you don't like long form essays. Maybe you like shorter stuff. Okay, cool. Make like make mm -hmm. tweet threads. Or and the maybe, thing is, yeah. your stuff from 2000 should be worse than your stuff yeah. from today. Because otherwise, exactly. I mean, what have you been doing all this time? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you will get better. But like you, especially as a product lead, you have to realize that iteration is part of it. So you can also always go back and rewrite and improve stuff you did in the past. You're like, oh, I learned this new insight. This, this helps. And, and so you can always enhance stuff you've done before, tune it up and consider stuff will work in progress. But that's one part of it. The other part is, is then just understanding that like find your voice. And so if your voice is like, I am getting really good at making awesome, like three minute explainer videos, like those kinds of looms and stuff we've been talking about. If that's a skill and a superpower you have, that's great. There are people that will love you for that. And so experiment with different mediums and see which ones you enjoy enough that you feel like, okay, I want to keep going deeper in those. And what I think you'll find is that if you're good at something, that medium will become a medium people enjoy that you do. So like, I know I can write really long form essays that people will read. And I all the time find people like, Jason, I hate long blog posts. And yet I find myself <laughs> continuing to read yours. And it's like, well, why is that? It's because it's good. 
and, and like, so find your medium that you want to get good at, but don't feel like you have to do like just exactly what your mentor or your boss does. Find a medium that you're good and you're passionate about, and that will come through, whether it's like a podcast interview like this, or it's a short post, or it's a tweet storm, or it's TikToks, like whatever it is, find something that you can do that allows you to convey and teach people things. That is a medium you want to get good at. And what you'll find is people will then be willing to look at your stuff, even when they normally wouldn't be that into it. Yeah. And it's totally fine if you choose just one medium. Like at the very beginning, I always recommend to try everything just to like see what you like and maybe make it, okay, for one month, I'm going to write one blog post every week. And then one month, I'm going to do 10 TikToks in a row. And then one month, like make it a little so that you can get a feel for how it is if you use these mediums a little longer than just a week. But then if you say, okay, like... TikTok, I just don't get it. And Twitter, it's too short-lived, but I absolutely love LinkedIn posts or like newsletter writing is where I really feel like I can dig in. Like then stick to that. Like there's no shame in not being everywhere. And actually it's probably better because your time is limited, uh, both at work and outside work. So focus on what you enjoy. Yes. And also when you're consuming, think the same way. Like I think one of the best skills you can develop as a PM in general is self-awareness. And so when you're doing something, can you step back and think like, oh, what am I experiencing here right now as a user? And that can help you, for instance, learn all kinds of different interfaces and actions you may want to bring into the product you work on. But it can also work here on these mediums. What mediums resonate with you when you see someone do something good? Like what, when you, you know, when you read a long form essay. Are you curious? Like, how did they structure that? Why did I actually like reading that 15 minute article? Or, Hey, why did I really like that three minute explainer video? What did they do that I really enjoyed about that? Like if you can start to dissect that and you actually get interested and passionate about it, that's a good sign that you may want to be a creator in that format as well. Cool. Is there, so communication, we talked a bunch about communication here. Uh, Are there any other skills that are specific to being a remote PM that like, I'm thinking I might want to transition to a remote team. I should start working on that skill building. Is there another one that comes, any others that come to mind you think are really important that the PM should think about heading to the proverbial gym for? Get organized and upgrade your reminder game. Because especially, it's, it's really interesting how our brain puts reminders into spaces and like you work in, into, you walk into the office and then you remember that you left this thing yesterday undone and then you do it. And in a remote environment, you have a lot less physical reminders around you because maybe your office is in your living room or like other things happen in your office that are not work-related. So you don't have the same triggers. And that does not only happen for you, but this happens for everybody else on your team. So while you hopefully, like why you may hope that, okay, I told Jason he has to do this thing until Friday, there's a high chance he's going to forget. So I know that Jason here would put up a reminder into his own system and I don't have to worry about it, but I'm not going to trust the universe that everybody is going to do this. So like being able to put reminders up, or be that Slack reminders or adding it to your Todoist or whatever you use as your, as your system, your, your poison of choice, like make sure that you have your own things, like reminders for your own things that you don't want to forget. And also reminders for the things that you asked other people to do. And then, and that's the tricky part. 
you don't want people to get used to the fact that you are always going to remind them and that they don't need to remember it themselves. So you need to find a balance on how you can keep track on what people are actually doing so that you have peace of mind without having them delegate the the accountability completely to you. And that is a fine line that I think everybody will, hopefully you find the solution that works for you. For me, what, what, what works is like having my team deliberately do like updates twice a week where I can follow who's doing what and who's focusing on what. And then when I see, oh, but actually if by Friday they need to have done this and this is not in their Wednesday update, let me just check if this is actually happening so that I can then check in only when it's necessary. And I know that less things will fall through the cracks, like something will always fall through the cracks, but like, let's just make it make less things. So this kind of, I have been compared to a terrier who never lets go of a bone once she has it in her, in her fangs. And it's a little bit like this, this thing needs to get done. So how, what can I do to make it done? Empowering others that they can do it, but also still being aware without going into micromanaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a, a nuance to thread. I know one of the hacks that I really like is when I'm on a team and we're like setting, you know, making like tool decisions and things like that. I always make sure the loudest voice is what engineering wants because in, in many ways it's like if engineering chose the tool like you know that they're going to use for 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 scrum or agile and like kind of track their points it's like if they picked it they can't complain to me that like yeah. i force something on them <laughs> which, which for that that one engineer that you often will have on your team who's a little more resistant if they were involved in in the, in the choosing it just removes that thing where they like might blame you but also it can be helpful to then have a stronger understanding of the tool landscape so that you can try different things to see what works on a given team. Because like we've talked a lot about today, Valentina's brought up, like there's 31 flavors of remote teams and structures. And so a tool that might be a perfect fit for one may not work for others. But if you have kind of some of that knowledge and understanding of what's out there and like what the strengths are of some of these different things, it makes it easy for you to suggest the right thing to try. And then, you know, either discard because it didn't work or be like, wow, I was just so glad we added that to our arsenal. Was there anything else about kind of the perils of remote product management that you wish we had talked about today, Valentina? No, like what, just the one thing that I would like to go people away with, like product management is a very, very, very versatile activity. Like it can be really, really fulfilling because you can talk to a lot of people. You have so many different activities that you won't get bored it is not being the CEO of the product though. Like if you go into product management because you want to have the power to tell people what to do, find another job because this is not what it is. It has a lot of to do with persuasion, with motivating people and with explaining why things are the way they are so that you can like help others to see the box so that they can define like a better, better solution around the box. And for all of this to happen, you need to have more input than just product. Like you need a hobby, like you need a life, which if you are remote and you don't have to commute, like get a hobby. I don't know, like sign up for something with your kids. If you have kids, start going like running, help in the, the local food kitchen or something like do something outside where you can use project management skills and 
debugging situation skills. And this, this might be how can we improve the logistics for the local food kitchen? Or how do I prepare for an ultra marathon six months from now? Like where you can actually get complex pro projects with a clear outcome and break them down for yourself because the what you learn there will enrich your product management skills like no Coursera course will ever be able to do. Yes, that's a very good point. Having those outside interests and places as like creative outlets and again, bringing that self-awareness forward, I think can really help because then you start to realize like, oh, this isn't that different than this other situation can allow you to bring things from outside work into work that, that can make both better. Well, Valentina, thank you so much for joining us. How can people find you on the internet? Where do you want people to know to go to learn more about you, learn more about remote leadership? As I understand, I think you have a course maybe you'd like to tell yeah. people about. So so my my social media, my poison of choice is LinkedIn. <laughs> so that's where I mostly publish. You can like, if you know how to write my name and if you're re listening to this podcast, you know, just search for that name online and you'll find me on LinkedIn and you'll find my, my website. On that website, you'll also get the information about the course, which is the remote leader accelerator which is for people who lead people so you might be a product lead but it could also be that you have like a, a different team on how to hone their remote leadership skills and we're going very much into the nuances because just like give people a laptop and let them be happy is not enough so we go into what do you need to be a leader how can you engage your team and how can you actually have these difficult conversations that will always come up in a remote well also in an in-person situation and yeah until my daughter comes of age there's only one valentina turn out there so pretty easy <laughs> to find me <laughs> very nice very nice cool well valentina thank you so much for joining us we'll put a link to all this in the show notes uh there are a bunch of great book recommendations we'll also include there so uh thank you everyone for joining and thank uh, you for we'll having me this was so much fun <laughs> yes yes it was it was great so thank you so much <laughs>